In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Ibn. So last week, uh, we started and finished um, the book of Second John. Um, this week also we have another one of the epistles of St. John the Beloved, which is Third John, which is also only one chapter. So um, it's, a, it's a short book for us. Um, so the background of this book, um, St. John, he is writing to a man whose name is Gaius. Um, and he was most likely a person who belonged to a church in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is uh, modern-day Turkey. Um, and there are actually many people in the Bible whose name was Gaius. Um, and we're not sure if any of them were actually the same Gaius who's being written about here. So there's a Gaius mentioned in the books of Romans, Corinthians, more than one time in the book of Acts. Um, but it's not clear if this Gaius is the same Gaius mentioned before or if this is um, a completely different person. Um, so the, the main theme of the letter is he is writing to this person, Gaius, and he is talking to him about um, a, a, a church leader, uh, most likely like a priest, whose name is Diotrephes, and he, this person is preventing um, priests and missionaries from other churches from coming to minister to the congregation in his church. Right. So as we had mentioned before, at this period of time, there would be many people who were apostles or teachers or missionaries or people, people who are traveling and preaching. They would go from place to place and church to church to preach the word of God. And so that's why uh, it was always very important to um, know whether this teacher who is coming is a false prophet or not. Are they doing this for their own um, purposes or are they actually preaching the truth to the people? Um, and that was the theme of Second John where he was warning the churches about um, not accepting or greeting um, the, the false prophets. Whereas here, um, it's kind of the reverse problem. Instead of it being um, accepting of the false teachers, here he wasn't accepting the good teachers. Okay, He wasn't accepting um, anyone who was coming to preach to the church. And he even drove um, away people who were from the congregation that accepted those people. So if there was someone in the congregation who received these traveling teachers and, 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 and apostles and so on. Um, if this man, Diotrephes, he found out that, that anyone in his congregation um, accepted them, then he actually would drive them out. He would drive them out of the church. Um, so here, St. John um, is writing to Gaius, and he is encouraging him, and he's saying that he plans to visit him soon and to deal with the situation himself. But until he arrives in person, he is giving some direction and some encouragement um, about this issue. Um, also, we can see here that the damage that can come to the church um, from within is greater than the damage that can come from without. What do I mean? So let's say one of the things that attacks the church is persecution, right? And persecution are people who are coming from the outside attacking the believers, or people who are coming as false prophets from the outside that are trying to preach against what we believe in the church. Of course, this is damaging, but if everyone in the church is united and, and, and understands the faith and is strong, then it's not difficult for the church to withstand such attack. But when those in the church themselves turn to some kind of wicked practice or false teaching or, or behave kind of in this... Uh, kind of like self-interested way, like here we're going to discuss this Diotrephes is doing, they can have a far greater impact on the church. And this is actually how schisms, like divisions, happen in the church. Divisions do not happen because of persecution. 
Actually, persecution actually makes the church stronger. But divisions happen because of different factions that are formed in the church based on people who are following different teachings. And this is um, or different teachings or accepting a certain teacher or so on. This is what happened in the Corinthian church. When St. Paul was saying to the Corinthians, you know, there was a certain group that would follow Paul. There was a certain group that would follow Apollos. There was a certain group that was following St. Peter. And each one of these teachers was considered by the people to be kind of like the authentic teacher. And so they say, oh, no, I'm not for Paul. I'm for Peter. I'm not from Peter. I'm for Apollos and so on. And so it built up these divisions in the church, which causes destruction. Okay, because the church cannot function when it is divided. And so one of the greatest things, actually, that we need to prevent in the church is, is division. Because when division happens, it, it, it makes the church to be dysfunctional. Like, it can no longer operate, you know, because the church is the body of Christ. And the body cannot operate unless it is in union with one another. When the body begins to reject other parts of the body, then, you know, we call it like an autoimmune disorder. It is like, a, it's a disorder. It's, 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 it's the body is cannibalizing itself. It's destroying itself. You don't need an enemy from the outside to come and destroy it because the body will just simply destroy itself without anything else from the outside. And this is part of what's happening here is that this man, he is causing division and he's causing destruction to the body of Christ. <coughs> so how does it start? Just as in Second John, um, St. John, he starts the same way. He refers to himself as the elder. Okay, And as we mentioned last time, the elder here is the presbyter. The presbyter is the Greek word for priest, and it means like the intercessor of, of the church. So here, St. John is the apostle. He is the one responsible for the church. He is introducing himself, and he doesn't uh, use his name. This is the same way that he did in Second John. This is also he doesn't mention his he doesn't mention his own name even in his gospel. Anytime he wanted to mention himself in his gospel, what did Saint John say? Do you know? Yeah, the disciple whom Christ loves. So whenever Saint John refers to himself uh, in the gospels, in his own gospel, he says the disciple whom Christ loved, without mentioning himself by name. So here also he is not mentioning his name, um, but he is greeting. This beloved Gaius, okay, this is a specific person he's writing to. Um, and he's, again, just as we saw also in Second John last time, that he's emphasizing the idea of truth. For St. John and, and for all of us, the truth is the foundation um, of our faith. Because without truth, we don't know what to believe. You know, nowadays there are people actually who um, believe so many things. Actually, yesterday I saw this video about... Um, this podcaster who was speaking about this kind of psychedelic drug called DMT, okay? And people believe that when they take this psychedelic drug that your, your consciousness is elevated and a lot of people that take this drug, they report similar kinds of visions that they see, like certain kind of uh, creatures and, 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 and faces and, and to the point where like, like these people begin are beginning to say, well, maybe this is like a, 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 like, like a deeper sense of reality um, and maybe like almost like this is religion, you know, like this is a religious belief of like these chemical changes that are happening in your brain, seeing these things and so on. And I found it interesting because, you know, we as Christians, we believe that there is a reality that's a deeper reality than the one that we, you know, that we see in front of us. But what is our reality based on? It's not based on taking a drug 
right? It's it's not it's not based on kind of this intense emotional chemical experience, right? It's based on the revelation that we received that matches and fits all of the reality that we see around us that has explanations for all kinds of historical events that explains kind of our daily um, experiences that we have that, that God gives us an answer. He tells us an answer of why is the world the way that it is. He tells us where it is that we came from. He tells us what is our purpose and our goal and wh how we should be living and what we should be doing. He tells us what should we, we should be hoping for in the future. All of these things together build up a Christian worldview that we understand the world, the universe, the afterlife, ourselves. We have answers to all these things. Maybe we don't have complete answers. Maybe we don't have the answer to every question, but we have enough answers to feel like we are part of something that is abiding, that is that is good, that is the truth, and we find comfort and peace in, in knowing that we are a part of it, right? It's like you are you are traveling in this storm, but you are on this very, very strong ship, and there is nothing that can harm this ship. And so you find comfort in the fact that you are here. You are find comfort that we are part of this this ship that is gonna w is gonna weather the storm and nothing can damage it or hurt it or affect it, and so that brings peace. You know that even though we see troubles and storms and all kinds of difficulties, but there is peace in the the understanding of the truth, right? Whereas people that don't have the truth, that are trying to discover truth in all kinds of different ways, some people take drugs and say this is the truth. Some people say although the truth is the aliens. Some people say the truth. Though is, is the emotions. Some people say the truth is only in the mind. Some people say the truth is found only in the past. You know, so everyone is trying to find understanding and meaning and truth somehow, right? Because they don't have, uh, they don't, it has not been revealed to them in a way that they believe it and understand it and accept it and say, I am comfortable because I abide in the truth. So, St. John, in 2nd John and also now in 3rd John, he introduces this, again, speaking about truth. Last time when he was speaking about the false prophets, right, how do we define what is false? Well, we define what is false because we know what is true. And if so, something is not true, obviously it's false. So that kind of very simplistic, obvious kind of understanding of truth and that truth brings peace and truth brings illumination and truth brings purpose, right? But we live in a world that has abandoned the concept of truth because we don't want certain things to be true. We want to invent and create truth for ourselves. We don't want to live according to a truth that's imposed on us as a society. We want to discover truth and create truth and invent truth and that's where all of our truths can be different from one another and so on. But in the Christian understanding, in the Christian worldview, right? It requires, and foundationally, there must be a truth, and then not only that there is a truth that we believe in, like when we say, I have faith, yes, we, we mean that we have faith in the truth, but the faith is more than just a belief. The faith is an action, right? I believe in the truth, and so I live according to the truth. And this is what St. John is speaking about. In Second John, this is what he is speaking about here, right, is the truth. So here he is giving this uh, praise, to Gaius, and he's writing to him because, you know, of this conflict that's happening in the church. And so he's saying to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, they both share this truth of Christ, right? And, and we mentioned this, I believe, last time as well. You might have people who are believers that 
live in completely different countries with different cultures and different languages and all kinds of things, different life experiences, very different from one another. But the truth in Christ is something that unites, right? That's why you can have believers from all over the world in all kinds of different situations, and yet we are united together according to our faith. So here, St. John, Gaius, all the believers, they are abiding together in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Okay, so just as Gaius is prospering and excelling, you know, in his spiritual life, St. John wants Gaius and praying that Gaius would be successful in everything. Some, some people believe that Gaius was sick. And so here when St. John was asking for good health for him for his sickness, so he's saying, just as you are spiritually excelling, also, I, I pray that your body also is healed or body is, is, is you know, has recovery and so on. Um, even actually, when we pray uh, the unction of the sick, you know, if anyone has ever attended the prayer of the unction of the sick, we pray it on the last Friday of the great fast. Uh, we also pray it in people's homes whenever someone is very sick. Um, in this prayer, um, which the foundation of it is in the epistle of St. James, where St. James is saying, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church to come in and anoint him with oil and so on. Um, that's the, like the foundation of the sacrament. And, and so the, the kind of sickness that we speak about in the church is both the physical sickness and the spiritual sickness. So even when we pray the unction of the sick prayer, what we're praying for is both the physical healing and the spiritual healing. Because we acknowledge that there are many times when we ask God for the physical healing of someone, but that physical healing doesn't come. You know, someone who is sick, maybe someone who is about to die and we pray for them, or someone who is sick for a very, very long time in their life and they have all kinds of problems and pain and so on, and we ask God repeatedly to heal such a person, and maybe the healing does not come. Well, maybe the healing does not come because this sickness is actually the means of spiritual health. Because again, God's main pro focus, his main focus is our spiritual health, not the just the physical health. As human beings, obviously, because our senses, we sense the importance of the physical health very, very much. Um, but the spiritual health is, even in the eyes of God, even more. We see this very much in the, in the story of when the four men lowered their friend um, from the roof where Christ was in the house, this man who was lame and paralyzed, and they asked uh, Christ to, to heal him. The very first thing that Christ said was not, you're healed, but he said, your sins are forgiven, right? And then he healed the man, saying that the greater, the greater bondage that a person who is paralyzed has is not the physical bondage of not being able to walk, but the spiritual bondage, right? Because we're all in spiritual bondage. So Christ was forgiving the sins of this man, right? And that, again, is something we have access to. We can ask God for the forgiveness of our sins. So he's the, 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 the physical health and the spiritual health. Um, we can ask ourselves, how much emphasis do we place on one versus the other? Even in the church, even when we're asking for the physical health of a person, we also ask God for their spiritual health and to be with them um, spiritually. Then he says, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 
So always for the apostles, getting good news about the churches that they have established and the churches that they serve and the congregation that they love, this is always a great joy for them because this is their whole mission and purpose in their life. You know, like many of us, we, we have many goals, right? Like we have career goals and financial goals and health goals and all kinds of goals. And so we want to excel in these things. These apostles had abandoned every possible goal except the one goal, which is the salvation of the people, right? This is, this, is, this is their calling as apostles that essentially they commit their entire life to this service. We see this exemplified very much in the life of St. Paul, for instance. He says, I count everything as, as loss. You know, I see the whole world as nothing to me. Um, I've abandoned any desire for marriage. I have des abandoned any desire <coughs> for, for money. I don't even ask for money from the congregations that I'm serving, but I work myself lest I be a stumbling block to anyone. I I've given up my entire life for the purpose of serving God and the people for the salvation of others, and that's the only thing that interests him. That's the only thing that, that, that drives him, that, that, that he spends his attention on. He never spent, attention, never spent time doing anything else. This is all he is doing constantly, nonstop, from the time that he was an apostle until he was martyred. This was St. Paul's entire life, right? So when the apostles hear about good news that is coming from their congregation, this is the source of greatest joy. And when they hear the opposite, okay, when they hear bad news, this is also a source of great sadness for them. So here when St. John is, you know, understands that there is this problem in this church, about this man Diotrephes who is who is kind of like taking authority and power and control himself and he's not um, he, he's not allowing others to come and to serve and, and to for the his people to hear the truth so so obviously that's going to cause him a lot of distress but the idea that there are people in the congregation who are still righteous and holy and good even if this man Diotrephes even though he being kind of the highest rank um, in the church is 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 wicked or sinful he's doing sinful things this still brings joy you know to to saint john that he is walking in truth um again it's 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 it may be difficult to nowadays for us to hear about people who walk in truth people want to walk in their own truth people want to walk according to their own thinking but to people who walk according to the real truth um this was this was something good and again because of these false teachings and false teachers that were prevalent at the time the idea that Gaius is still walking in the truth um, and and he has not succumbed to the deceptions of the false teachers and so on this was a great joy to St. John also it says something that the church is not made up of just one category of people you know some people maybe have the mindset oh well, the church is nothing but people who are saintly everyone is a saint and when I go and I discover that maybe somebody is not acting like a saint, it's like shocking to me. How is it possible that there are people in the church who are not saints? But then there's the opposite. There's some people who are like, you know what, I don't go to church anymore. Why? It's like, oh, because everybody there is a hypocrite. Everybody there is a sinner. Everybody there is this and that. So when, when you take a label and you categorize every single person according to that label, it's wrong. Whether that label is a label of righteousness or a label of wickedness, it's wrong. God judges us as individuals. And each individual is different. And it is the, the reason why there might be a, a sinful person in the church, it doesn't mean that the church is sinful. It doesn't mean that the church is wicked. It doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally wrong with the church or the church is even sanctioning the wicked action of this individual, right? So one of the ways that the devil 
leads us away from the church is by getting us to be very caught up in the actions of certain people. We say, oh, you know what, this individual person, this individual person, he hurt me in a certain way, or he did something he shouldn't have, or he stole, or he lied, or he is prideful, or he is whatever, right? And, and, and we focus so much on the actions of this person, and we begin to believe that the whole church is like this, right? Or if the church was actually legitimate, then how is it it could produce a person like this? Completely forgetting that each person has free will and actually looking at ourselves. You know, it's like, am I that saintly person? Have I ever cheated? Have I ever lied? Have I ever mistreated another? Have I ever done anything wrong? Well, I'm also a member of this church. So how is it that I can accept myself to be in the church, but I cannot accept another person who has their own set of flaws, right? And that is the beauty of the church, because as we say that the church is a hospital, the only way the church can be a hospital is if it is filled with people who are sick, right? Because if we have already kind of been all cured of our sickness, right, then the church is not really fulfilling its role for us. The whole reason we are here is because we have not yet achieved health. We are here because we continue to be sick. And actually, we will continue to be growing in health, God willing, until the end of our life. But we will remain sick in some way, which is why we continually need the treatment, right, all the time. So when someone comes and misunderstands what is the purpose and the function of the church, they can be very offended by what they might find. Again, they either have the wrong perception that everyone is perfect or they have the wrong perception that everyone is wicked. And both of those things can be a stumbling block because it's going to have people not understand what is the church really. Okay, Especially when you see here, like this church that St. John is speaking about, the head of the church, the leader of the church, this man, Diotrephes, he is wicked. He's doing things in an evil way, right? He is not accepting instruction. He is not doing what is right and so on. So someone might conclude by seeing this example of this person and this congregation. They say, no, look, the whole church is a fraud. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing good here. Oh, it's just a bunch of people that are operating according to their own kind of ambitions and what they want and they're taking control and doing that. But one beautiful thing about the church is that God has a way of correcting the things that are wrong. You know, and there's a difference between a person who is a sinner and weak, but struggling and repenting and trying to grow and, 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 and acknowledging their weakness versus a person who is simply um, a hypocrite, hiding or, or taking, taking whatever they can for their own personal benefit without regard for anyone in the church. You know, all throughout history, those people who have been the ones that have been actively warring against the church, God has dealt with them. Right. God has dealt with them. The Pharisees is a good example. You know, the Pharisees, they didn't care about the truth. All they cared about is their authority. And they were like, if, if people start following Christ, then what role are we going to have? The Romans are not going to care about us anymore because we don't have any role to control the people. This is actually what they said. We're going to lose our place with the Romans if people follow Christ. Right. What is it that they cared about? They didn't care about the salvation of the people. They didn't even care about like religious stuff. They cared about the, their power. They wanted to maintain power. And yet God put them in their place. God removed their seat. God took care of this situation. Maybe it took a very long time, but God took care of it. Okay. Whereas those people who were sinful and weak, but, 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 but um, sincere and really wanting to change, the people who we would look at from the outside and say these are like the real sinners, right? The real sinners like the harlots and the thieves and these people, those are actually the ones who are the most successful, the ones who, who, who achieve the greatest gains from Christ 
because they acknowledge their own weaknesses and so on. So the whole, the whole uh, epistle here against Diotrephes is not just speaking about a sinful person because the whole congregation is sinful. He's speaking about someone who is refusing to change, someone who is refusing to submit, someone who is refusing to examine themselves, someone who is refusing to acknowledge that what they are doing is wrong. And whenever we fall into that category, that's really when we are in danger, right? Because we are not, we are not allowing this hospital to treat us. We are here, but we think that we are better than everyone else. And we think that we are the only ones that are right. And we, we want to kind of um, push our own agenda rather than to submit to the teachings of the church. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. So again, the issue here in this church is that Diotrephes was rejecting these traveling teachers and apostles and so on from coming and visiting his congregation and preaching to them and having fellowship with them. He was rejecting that, okay? So here, St. John, he was speaking to Gaius, and he is saying, you are doing whatever you are doing for the brethren and for strangers, meaning you are hospitable to the strangers, you are showing love um, for the people, and you are suffering yourself because of um, diatrophies. Because diatrophies says anyone who is um, accepting these people coming to the church, I'm rejecting them. So Gaius himself, you know, is, is if, if he is being faithful and even to the strangers, then he very likely is under kind of a target for Diotrephes, who is essentially going to reject him out of the church because of what he is doing. So St. John is encouraging him to continue to do what he's doing. And so his service is not based on an earthly reward because he is not receiving any earthly reward. He's receiving only the heavenly reward because his desire is to follow the commandments of God and at great personal sacrifice, not just doing what is easy, okay? And this says something very important as well that we can comment on is what is my motivation in the service of God? You know, what is my motivation in the service of God? If my motivation in the service of God is to have a position, or if my motivation is to seek some kind of praise, then I will be disappointed. Okay, I will be disappointed. Because there will always be people, I mean, God willing, there will be people who are appreciative, yes, but there will always be people who are critical. Right? There will always be people who are critical, and people who are going to be critical of us no matter what we do, no matter what good intentions we have, no matter how much we try to do good. And there will always be misunderstandings, and there will always be things. So if, if my... If the reason and my motivation and my drive <coughs> in the service of God is to, to achieve some kind of level of appreciation or praise or recognition or whatnot, um, that is very likely not going to happen. Or if it is happening, it might not always be so, right? So if I build, my, if I build up my kind of my service and myself based on the current appreciation that I'm receiving in the moment for what I am doing, it might not always be so. You know, because life comes in seasons. There are seasons of life where maybe everyone around me is praising me. You know, think about like King David, for instance. King David as a king. There is a season of his life where he is king, where he is powerful, where everyone's praising him, where he has control of the whole nation, where, where everything is going positively, where all of, you know, everything he's doing is, is, is winning and he is 
um, his, his, his armies are winning and, and the people are subdued under him and he, everything is great. But then you fast forward, there's another season of King David's life where he's running for his life and his son is trying to take the throne from him and he is at risk of dying and people are blaspheming him and insulting him. Like so, so th th there's a whole another season, right? So the man or the woman who is um, truly the servant of God will remain a servant of God, whether they are in the season of praise or whether they are in the season of criticism. It shouldn't matter to us because in the end, we are not serving the people. <coughs> we are serving God through the people. And that's a, a big distinction. There's a difference between serving the people versus serving God through the people. Obviously, we are called to serve people. But what does it mean to serve people? Serving people does not mean I'm going to give everyone what they want because actually this is going to get me the, the most praise. And this is going to get me everything going as smooth as possible because if I give everybody what they want, then no one's going to criticize me, right? But, of course, that's, that's not true because different groups want different things that are conflicting. But, but if, I if I have the mindset of, <coughs> if I have the mindset of I'm, I'm, I'm serving God, then I can ask the question, what in the eyes of God is the right thing to be done, right? What is the right thing to be done according to God? And I'm going to do that, which is for the sake of the salvation of the people. Some people might appreciate that. Some people might not appreciate that, but in the end, it doesn't matter whether it's appreciated or not, because in the end, I'm serving God and I'm not serving the people. I'm serving God through the people and for the people. So um, he, our principle should always be for doing the right thing. So this man, Gaius, who is doing the right thing, might receive a lot of criticism and rejection as a result because he is doing the right thing. Um, in Second John Chapter 1, verse 6, it says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Okay, we mentioned this last week. The, the love of God is obedience to God. That is, this is what it means to love God. Okay, and here Gaius is following the commandment of God, and this is a demonstration of his love. This is a demonstration for his love of the truth. This is a demonstration of his sincere faith because he is doing what is right, even when apparently there are um, a lot of forces around him that are attacking this, and uh, he is suffering as a result of him doing what is right. So we have to be um, kind of maybe self-reflective and say, what is my motivation? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And how do I respond when people do not give appreciation or maybe they give criticism for what it is that I do? who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Okay, so these brethren and strangers that he mentioned in verse 5, the ones who um, he is serving, they have what borne witness of his love before the church. And if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. So what is he? what is he doing and what is the kind of the reason why the church receives these teachers, right? Well, obviously they receive the teachers to receive the word of God because they are teaching. They are also encouraging them. They are also giving them supplies and giving them a place to stay and food and so on so they can continue in their mission and serving other churches, right? Because this is their calling. Their calling is to travel from place to place, 
preaching. So when the church is hospitable to them, okay, he is actually allowing them to do their service that God called them for and to continue serving the church even in other places. Okay? And this is what he had. He had this sincere desire to serve the entire church. And the people took notice of this because he was so, um, so faithful and diligent is in it. This also brings up kind of another topic, which is um, how do we see the service? Sometimes we see the service as just my little slice of it. Okay, all I see is my little slice. And what I want is the best thing for my little slice. And a lot of times that's the best thing we can do. Okay? But there are many times where we have to expand beyond my little slice and think of how is this service affecting the service as a whole. This can happen, for instance, if there is a servant who is maybe very good that's in a particular service or in a particular church, and then that servant is called to go somewhere else maybe to leave this particular service to another one or to go from one church to another church. And maybe it's easy for us to feel like, okay, this is a loss. You know, it's like we have, we, we have lost a person. This happens maybe when a person is called to priesthood, right? Maybe this is one of the best examples. A person is, is, is like, was in, like a very good servant in a church, and then they leave that church um, because they're called for priesthood, and they become a priest somewhere else, maybe somewhere in a completely different state. And we're never going to see this person again. And we're not going to directly benefit from that person's service again. You know, and so a lot of times the people have a sense of loss. Like, you know, we have lost this person. Yeah, you know, this person who was doing such a great service and helping our people and helping our kids and helping this and this. You know, this person is now being taken away from us. And a lot of times the congregations will push back against the bishop when this happens. Or they'll tell him to just have him be a priest in our own church. Don't take him somewhere else. So it's, it's, a, it's natural, you know, to kind of feel this way, but it's also a reflection that we are thinking of the service in terms of my little sphere of it, right? What about the, 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 the service as a whole? Like this, this here, what this man Gaius is doing is he was being hospitable to these people, and, and a large part of the benefit would not be necessarily for him or for the local congregation, but be would be for other people because you are they are traveling from place to place and going from place to place. So it's like we are giving of our resources to help uh, others, right? Um, so we have to, again, ask ourselves, like, what is our motivation when we are serving? Do we have a sincere desire to serve, even if that service and that whatever we offer or give or sacrifice is primarily going to help others and not necessarily ourselves. Um, and also, how, how much are we seeking recognition um, in the service that we are doing? Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Okay? So a lot of these traveling preachers, apostles, so on, they were preaching to the Gentiles. Okay? That was a big part of the ministry because... I mean, honestly, other than the Jews, everyone's a Gentile, right? So beyond just the Jewish people, every single person who is a potential convert to Christianity is a Gentile. There were many, many, many more Gentiles than there were Jews um, that would be willing to listen to the message. And so that was a big focus of evangelism in the early church. Um, and so the majority of the converts were uh, Gentiles and not Jews. So here what Gaius is doing is he's showing hospitality and giving resources and equipping these teachers so that they could go into the Gentile areas. 
And then in the Gentile areas, they could help convert people who are um, Gentile pagans into Christians. And this was very important because you don't want these traveling teachers to go and request resources from those people. You know, what's the first thing you think of when, you know, somebody comes to you and they ask you for money? You know, they're like, okay, you know, are you really here because you want to teach me the truth or you're just out to get money from me? You know, it's not a good look when you go to someone and the first thing you do is you ask them for money, right? So it would hinder their service if they would have to be supported by the Gentiles that they are going to preach to. So here, people like Gaius and, 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 and many of the other churches that were supporting this ministry, they would give the resources necessary to these people so that when they go to those other areas, they don't have to be asking for money. And actually, this is even what St. Paul was saying. When St. Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, I believe it was the Corinthians, and he was telling them, you know, I'm not even asking money from you. I'm working myself, he was a tent maker, so that he could have money for himself so that he wouldn't go and, and be a burden on those people lest they think that he is out there just to get their, their resources and their money, right? So, so this was definitely an important thing. Um, if, 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 if they were seeking donations from the Gentiles, they might have misunderstood their intentions. Um, and so here it is responsibility of the church, and St. Paul says the same. St. Paul says, you know, a worker is worthy of his wages. He says, even the oxen, as they are treading out, you know, like the, the, the fields, are eating of the, the plants, are eating of the crop that they are, that they are um, kind of working. So it's this example to mean what? Like a, the person who is serving, their livelihood is tied up with the service that they are offering. Okay? We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers of the truth. Meaning what? Not everybody is a preacher. Not everybody is a priest or a bishop or a Sunday school servant. But we can all participate in the, the working of the truth, which is the spreading of the word of God, which is the evangelistic service, which is the pastoral service. We can all participate in this by supporting those people that are in such ministries, right? So if everyone is given a talent, okay, that we can use for, for the service, one person's talent that they've been given is, you know, they have a lot of resources. And, and, and by being very generous, they are enabling the work of the church. They are enabling the work of certain, you know, ministries in the church because the gift that they received was maybe to a large extent material, okay? Whereas another person has the gift of teaching. Maybe that there that's the person who's going to be going and, and actually teaching. Or another person has a gift of counseling. And that person is also going to be interacting with the people maybe in a different way. Maybe not to teach like theology or to teach the facts about the church, but to counsel and to give advice and guidance to people. So everyone can um, participate and be, a, as he says here, a fellow worker of th for the truth in different ways. We all have a role to play. We have to ask ourselves, am I using the talents that God has given me? Like number one, do I even know what the talents are? What are the talents that God has given me? Two, am I only using the talents that God has given me for myself? You know, am I giving, am I using them only for my own benefit, from the end of benefit of my immediate family, or am I using them also for the benefit of the church? Yeah.
Yeah, so you're asking, how do you know, how do you, how do you, like, what if someone doesn't know their talents, what should they do? So you have to ask, like, if I don't know my talents, why is that? Why is it that I don't know my talents? Some people might not know their talents because they haven't chosen to give of themselves, you know? Like, if I, li if I live kind of to myself, only seeking what is of mine, I might not know my talents because I haven't sought to use them in any way. I haven't sought to serve another person. When you begin to serve other people, you discover what your talents are because there's some things you're just not good at and some things you're good at. Like, for instance, in the church, you might see that, okay, you, 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 you see that there are people who are teaching, okay? And then you say, do, do I have that, that gift or that talent of teaching? Maybe I try to teach people and I find it, um, I find it enjoyable. I find that people are saying that, you know, I, I'm, they're learning from me or so on. Maybe that's a sign that I have a talent in that area. Or maybe it's the last thing I want to do. You know, like there's some people who say the last thing I want to do is stand in front of a group of people and talk. That is the last thing I want to do. I don't, you, you, and there are people who are very, very good servants in the church, and they will put hours and hours and hours of time into the service, but the last thing they want to do is stand in front of a group of people and talk. So, again, that's a discovery, right? Like I'm discovering about myself that that's not really what I like doing, right? Um, so there are also other ways, like, for instance, there there's, like, surveys that you can take, like um, assessments, like self-assessments that you can take that kind of help you discover your personality and what areas, even a career, like, you know, what I would be, you know, talented at doing in my career and so on. Um, but it's important that we don't just, like, if I don't know my talents, especially if I'm an adult and I don't know my talents, um, I should sit with myself and ask myself, okay, like, what are my talents? And if I don't know them, why don't I know them? And, and look at maybe my life. Maybe the answer is there, but I just haven't paid attention to it. Look in your past. What are the things you've failed at? And what are the things you've excelled at? You know, that gives you a clue as to, you know, what are the things that I'm good at? Because the, uh, the question of what are my talents, it's not a, like a secret. It's not like a hidden thing. It should be pretty obvious to most people because there are some things that I simply enjoy doing and some things I don't. Like, for instance, some people are really good at learning hymns and have nice voices. Other people don't, right? Like, there are some people that they could try for hours and hours learning a hymn and they can't learn it, you know? But there are other people that just like pick it up and then just immediately, right, for some reason, they can do it, right? So you'll, you'll discover it based on your strengths. And if you don't know your strengths, ask someone that you trust. Ask them, what do you think are my strengths? You know, what are the things that you think I'm good at doing? But, but to a large extent, we will already have discovered it, but maybe we're just not aware of it. A lot of times we assume that other people are like us. So it's like if I'm good at something, that means everybody's good at that thing. And if I'm bad at something, everyone's bad at that thing. But the more you interact with people, the more you realize, like, no, we're all different. Like, you know, maybe I have something that I see around me nobody else has or very few people have. Or people are acknowledging that I have something better. This is part of what being in the body of Christ, one of the benefits of being in the body of Christ and having fellowship. The more I have fellowship with others, the more I discover myself. You know, you can't discover yourself in isolation. You don't know yourself when you're alone. You only know yourself once you begin to interact with others because you can understand yourself relative to others, right? When I'm completely by myself, I don't really know, like, okay, is what I'm doing right or wrong? Is what I'm doing, is this really a talent or not? Is everyone like this? Or maybe I'm the only one like this. You discover it in the group, okay? So that's important. Yes. So 
how do you know that your talent is actually useful in the church? Like, say that I, I know some like I know some things I enjoy or some things that I'm kind of good at, but I really don't know how like how that talent could be like ministered for the church. So you can talk to like the people who are responsible for different services, or you can talk to the priest. You can ask them. It's like you know, this is my these are the things that I'm good at, or this is the things that I do at work, or these are the things I enjoy doing. Is there a way that I can use this? Sometimes there isn't a direct, you know, one-to-one correspondence between the things that I'm good at and the things that I can do in the church. But there is uh, maybe a mindset, you know, like for instance, someone might have an artistic mindset, right? And there's a way to use that artistic mindset in the church, like being creative and doing kind of creative things. Someone might have a very analytical mindset, you know, like, I don't know, let's say someone's like a petroleum engineer or something, okay? You're not going to use petroleum engineering in the church, but someone who's an engineer maybe has a certain mindset that can be used in the church. So it's you don't necessarily have to use the exact thing that you were trained for, but the reason that you chose that field is because you have some talents and gifts and characteristics about you that can be applied to other things. <coughs> I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to have pre- the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Okay, so remember, he is writing to Gaius, who is aware of this situation, right? And he's now telling him, I wrote to Diotrephes, okay, who is the leader of the church, and he does not receive us. He doesn't respond to us. He doesn't, he doesn't have anything to do with us. He wants to do his own thing. Right, so this is like the counterexample of Gaius. Gaius was very hospitable, was very open, very sincere, loves the truth, serves the people. Okay, Diotrephes, Saint John um, describes him as someone who just wants preeminence. Right, he 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 doesn't accept these traveling ministers. And why 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 does he have preeminence? What or, or how is that his motivation? There's several reasons actually why this could be. Number one, maybe he is very prideful and he's a controlling person, right? He wants to exert authority. When another person who is a teacher is going to come into my church and that person's going to begin teaching, then because I have insecurity in myself, then maybe I'm going to be um, kind of un- feeling undermined by them. Maybe I feel insecure and I, 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 I'm afraid that people are going to go after this person. People are going to enjoy this person's sermons more. People are going to care about this person more. It's undermining me because I don't have confidence in myself. I'm insecure in myself. And so I don't want to host these people because maybe they're going to make me look bad. Maybe, maybe they are you know, going to take away that sense of authority that I, that I have. Okay. Um, number two, another reason. Um, is because thank you. Um, he, 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 maybe he doesn't want to acknowledge the role of others. Sometimes we get into the mindset of I can do it all and I'm sufficient for it all. And if I need to ask help from anyone, then that's like a personal failure, right? Like if I need to ask somebody to help me for something, then, then that's a failure for me. This tends to happen for people who are like very high achievers, people who are used to be able to achieve a lot, but then they're asked to do something or they're asked to operate in an environment that is not just about one person, you know, doing it. You have to work in a team, you know, or you don't have the skills yourself to do everything. 
you know, one of the things that like managers, for instance, at work, they have to do is they have to manage people that know more than they do about a subject, right? Which requires humility and requires like self-confident security in yourself. Because if I'm dealing with people who have higher level, like they excel in certain areas that I myself do not, because obviously the manager can't be the best at everything, right? The manager's job is not to do the work. The manager's job is to guide the people to, to do the work to get the best outcome, to be able to communicate with the people, to be able to encourage them, to be able to get them focused, to give them a vision. Yes, they have some sense of knowledge, but they're not to the depth of knowledge that each of those individual people have. Okay, So um, a, maybe this person, okay, he didn't want to acknowledge the role of other people. You know what? I'm not the savior. I'm not like the greatest preacher. There's other preachers. There's other people that we need to, to be able to bring to serve. You know, I'm not the end-all, be-all of interpreting the word of God. There's got to be other people who are going to come. And we want you to hear from them as well. And we want to support their ministry as well because they're also going in other places and they're serving in other things. So it's not just about me and it's not just about what I can do. And again, if I sec have security in my own talents and my own role and position that I've been given, the calling God has given me, then I don't have to feel that way. It's easy for me to actually bring in other people. I feel, I feel motivated and encouraged to bring other people because in the end, what I care about is the end goal, right? In this case, the salvation of people. So it's not about me. It's not about pointing at me. It's again, it goes back to the idea that I shouldn't be seeking attention or, um, or, or recognition or praise. That's not the goal. So I'm fine with not being number one. I'm fine with not being the one who receives all the attention because what I care about more is what is the best thing for the work? What is the best thing for the salvation of the people? Maybe he is jealous at the role of others. Maybe he thinks other people are better than him, you know, that he or he wants a position that they have. Maybe he wishes he was the one traveling from place to place, you know, and, and not the one who is, is who is just like in one fixed location. Maybe he wishes that. So he's jealous about them, uh, toward them, and so he doesn't want them to come. Um, maybe he doesn't want others to take, take credit for their work, right? So, like... Like he wants to take the credit from them. He doesn't want to give them an opportunity to come and to teach and to do so. He wants to take all the credit for himself. Um, or he is selfish. You know, he's thinking just about himself. Or he's very stingy with his resources. Right? He doesn't want to give of the resources of the church to support these people um, who are coming. Um, so there are many reasons where why he, 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 he loves this preeminence. He wants to have preeminence. Right? Preeminence means he wants to be th the top, you know. He wants to be the one who is seen, the one who is acknowledged, the one who has given honor, right? Um, maybe we see this a lot in, in, in our work, you know. Like we know people like this, I mean people who like just want to take credit for everything and they don't want to share the credit and they want to work together. Um, but we should also look at ourselves and see is there some elements of this um, in us? Uh, some people believe actually that he was um, teaching false doctrines. And so he didn't want to receive the teachers because the teachers were going to contradict what it is that he was teaching. And so he wanted to have, like, control. Like, you know, it was like he wanted to turn his church into a cult, okay, according to his own teaching, according to his own personhood, and so on. Um, so those are some reasons why he might be feeling that way, wanting to have preeminence. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to 
putting them out of the church. Okay? So St. John... St. John is saying that when I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. Meaning what? Like he's going to confront him. Okay? If St. John is saying, I'm going to come and confront him. Because um, again, not only is he not receiving these teachers, but he is punishing the people who are wanting to receive them. So he's going to be very direct with him. Um, and he feels like this urgent need to address it. Sometimes in the church, we find that um, whenever there are conflicts, we want to deal with it silently. You know, like we want to deal with it gently and we want to deal with it kind of hidden, in a hidden way to reduce um, kind of like the negative impact that it might have or the confrontation or conflict that it might have. And a lot of time that's the best way. But there are some times when you have someone who is in a very public position, who is teaching publicly things that are wrong and maybe has deceived people or convinced people that these wrong things are the truth, that you have to take a public stance against it. You know, this is why, for instance, in the church, if there's a priest who um, has been teaching something false and they approach that priest first kind of privately and saying, hey, these things aren't right, you shouldn't be teaching this and so on, and that person rejects it, that, that it can get to the point where the church even makes a public statement that says, hey, the teachings of this priest so-and-so, we do not accept it, and even to the point of defrocking that priest or so on. So obviously those things are difficult and, 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 and cause conflict and cause dissension, but the, the, the alternative is to just leave it alone or, or to not really address it directly. And if you don't do that, you know, maybe in the short term there is peace, but in the long term, maybe the damage is worse. Okay, um, so, so St. John... Um, again, his his primary goal is he doesn't want the church to be harmed, and so if there has to be a direct confrontation with him now, um, he he chooses to do so. And it takes discernment, you know. Um, it it takes discernment to know. Saint John Chrysostom he says what when a lay person makes a mistake, he easily comes back, but when one of the clergy sins, he becomes very hard to accept advice, you know, because. Um, the clergy is in a position of authority. And he sees, okay, a lot of people are looking to me for authority. And for me to admit that I've made a mistake and to uh, admit that mistake publicly and to kind of repent publicly, it takes a lot of humility. Whereas maybe a person with lower authority, if they make a mistake, it's not as difficult for them to kind of acknowledge. Um, this is what St. John Chrysostom um, is saying. <coughs> Also, what came to my mind about this man, Diotrephes, um, has to do with uh, the type of leader that he is. So, I don't know, some of you know John Maxwell. John Maxwell writes leadership books, um, and one of his books is called The Five Levels of Leadership. And so he speaks about these five levels of leadership, like starting out with like level one, which is just like you have a position. You know, your leadership is essentially determined just by your, your title. And then going all the way up, you know, up the scale to where like people appreciate you so much, and you're you're you know you you have to do so little effort to lead because you have such a good reputation and so on. So this level one leadership is what kind of came to my mind when it came to Diotrephes. Like, he, all he cares about is his position, and people who care about their position, they have a hard time people following them because they expect that people will follow them simply because they have the rank. You know, like my rank is boss. So because my rank is boss, everyone's going to respect me, everyone's going to do what I say, everyone's going to 
you know, defer to me. Everyone's going to come to me for guidance. Everyone's going to do what I think, you know. Like sometimes we think that just because I have given the rank and the position that people are going to follow what I say. But that's actually not true. Having the rank is important because that gives you the opportunity to start leading. But leadership is about investing in people. Leadership is about leading people to a place that's good, right? And so here, this man, Diotrephes, he was a leader, but he's not leading the people to a place that's good. He made it again all about himself, all about his ego, um, and, and not leading the people to salvation or to anywhere that, that, that he should be going. <coughs> So the question is, is how do you know if a person before they're like promoted to a higher rank <coughs> is, is going to be able to accept criticism in a good way or not? That's the question. And then there was other stuff he said. <laughs> um, <coughs> so uh, a lot of times you don't, you don't know, but you look at their history, you know, and you, you look at like how have they behaved in the past uh, when other similar situations have arisen. This is usually, like, let's say when you have someone who's going to become a priest, they before they were a priest, they were, like, say, a Sunday school servant, let's say. So they already had some type of authority at a lower lower level. And so you say, okay, when they were had this authority, how did they respond whenever they were criticized? Like, let's say they made a decision, and that decision was not the right one. And then the priest came and said, no, you shouldn't have done this, okay. So how do they respond when that happens? Did they respond by correcting what they did and changing it and accepting it or did they fight back and got defensive and so on so if you find someone who is fighting back getting defensive most likely that person would not be recommended to be priest you know as an example i'm just giving an example we all suffer from this like think about the difference between a child and an adult right children are very easy to accept some kind of criticism because they're receiving criticism all the time. Everyone, every day someone is telling them, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, you know, follow instructions, so on and so on. And kids are expected to follow, okay? Obviously, many might disobey, but that's the expectation, right? But when you become an adult, you know, it's like your, your ego starts to get involved in it. Maybe for kids, it's not as much about the ego. It's just because they don't want to do what you're asking them. Whereas for the adult, it's not just about whether I want to do what you're asking me or not. But now it's about my ego. It's like, how, how dare you tell me what to do kind of thing, which is much less like in children. So, and that comes from the authority, right? Because as an adult, you know, like if, you're, if your child is telling you like, okay, you did something wrong or whatever, it's harder for us maybe as, as, as parents to even admit to our kid that yes, I did it wrong, it was wrong. Because we have, we're used to authority now, right? And so how, how is it that me who is now an authority could admit that I have failed? I'm the one supposed to be teaching others. How is it that I could now admit that I failed? And so the higher you go, the harder this is, right? Because you have more and more authority, which is why when you think of like King David, King David and the repentance that he, he offered, like, maybe it's hard for us to relate to that because he was the king. You know, he was, he was the king 
and him to fall like he did and then whenever he was confronted he said i have sinned you know like 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 he he admitted it he didn't try to defend it anyway he just accepted it and the scandal that would come out of it and so on he 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 accepted everything he accepted the consequence of it that god gave him because of it so you can tell like you know you like like in the parable of the talents when when it says what you know those who have been given little and are faithful with what is little they will be given more that's what that means you know those who are responding well in the smaller situations will be promoted to the higher and then when they respond well in that they'll be promoted to the higher that's how you tell if a person's character is there to see whether they would be able to have the higher ranks and position and authority or somebody in authority wh- whatever the authority is how do you balance between like having like a good level of confidence to act in whatever authority that you're, you've been given like say you've been given to teach Sunday school so like you should like be expected to have some like level of knowledge and some level of like ability to do what you're s- supposed to be doing so you're not s- expected to be like asking like questions to like the person above you with every single like step that you're doing right but also you're not expected to be like 100% independent from the person above you right so how do you balance that so you're not like doing too much of either direction does that make sense how do you as the person who has been given that rank know how to balance that yeah like like you're supposed to be also like kind of submissive to authority but how would you be submissive if you're like always like making decisions from your head but how do you also like not ask too many questions to where you don't know even how to think for yourself so being submissive is is not contrary to making decisions like you can be making decisions but that doesn't mean that you're not submissive being submissive doesn't mean you're going to go and ask for permission to do everything but being submissive says if i know what the person above me desires and wants like i'm trying to learn what is it that you want me to do in a general way all right and then i carry that out to the best of my ability if there are certain things that i'm not clear about i can ask but it doesn't mean that i have to go and ask about every detail yes there might be things that happen that i do that maybe wasn't what was what they wanted me to do um and it's at that point that i have to be humble and say okay you know i'm going to change this or whatnot but but you can be submissive and independent you know, like independent means like I, I can operate on my own. I can make decisions on my own, but I'm making decisions with the mindset of what that person would want me to do. So like, for instance, like Sayyidna, for instance, like all the priests, we want to please Sayyidna, but we don't go ask him for every decision that we're wanting to make. But we try to understand his philosophy, the way he thinks about things, and then we apply that in the decisions that we make. Yeah, every once in a while, maybe we don't do the right thing. Uh, but, but, but at that point, it's like you're you're learning, you know. You're, you know. Okay. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Um, so instead of like directly at- attacking Diotrephes about his own. You know, because he was saying, he says malicious words about us. But St. John is not responding with malicious words. You know, St. John is not like saying, okay, you cursed me, so I'm going to curse you back. No, instead, he is, he is elevating the argument to one that is like edifying to everyone. It's like, do not imitate what is evil. 
You know, maybe he is acting in an evil way, but our response should not be an evil response. But imitate what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So sometimes when we are, are wronged or when we see some kind of uh, evil, our natural response is we need to respond in kind. We need to respond in the same manner that we, you know, that, that, that it happened to us because that is what we receive. So that's what is, the, what is it we should give. But that is not here what he is saying. He's saying do not imitate what is evil. You cannot correct evil with evil, right? But you correct evil with good. He who does evil has not seen God. He's saying the, 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 the one who lives in, in this evil and desires evil and, and operates according to evil, this person is not a follower of God and we should not imitate them, right? And so, again, we should protect ourselves from this, right? Whenever maybe I am, uh, uh, I, I am um, like uh, enticed to do evil or encouraged to do evil or it comes to my mind, I should hold myself and say, no, this is this is not um, the the way of God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness. And you know that our testimony is true. So Saint John now mentions another person, whose name is Demetrius, who also like Gaius, he shares his good deeds and he welcomes the fellow believers. Um, some believe that this Demetrius might be the silversmith that made silver shrines to the goddess Diana and led a revolt against St. Paul in Acts chapter 19, um, who, who, who later became a believer, but we're not sure about that. Um, he has a good testimony for the people, and the people praise him. Um, he also has a good testimony from the truth, meaning that his actions are actually lining up with God's standard. Um, and because sometimes we find that people have a good testimony, but not according to the truth. You know, like celebrities. Like they have a good testimony. And since people will say all kinds of good things about them, people will rave about them. But why? What is it good that they have done? Actually, if you look, maybe all the things they do are evil or vanity, you know? So it's not enough to have a good testimony from all. It's good testimony according to the truth, meaning someone is praised for the right reasons, not just that somebody um, is praised. St. John Chrysostom, he says, Even the pagans revere the blameless man. Therefore, let us live a blameless life, so that no unbeliever nor an enemy can speak evil against us. Even the enemies revere those who live a godly life, for the truth shuts their mouths. Meaning what? <coughs> if someone is truly living according to the Christian principles of love and kindness and gentleness and, and self-control and, um, and, and forgiveness, and all these things, then even those people who do not believe in God, even those people who are against our faith, will appreciate <coughs> and will see the good characteristics, the good character traits that we have in dealing with them. You know, like, a, like an example of this would be like Daniel the prophet. You know, he lived in a pagan land, and the people there did not believe him. Nebuchadnezzar the king did not believe in the same thing he did initially. And yet, because of his example, his repeated faithfulness, his repeated faithful example, over time, like the king kept promoting Daniel because he had such good qualities and ultimately he did believe in God, right? So again, maybe we find ourselves in a place that is godless, but if we live according to our faith without judgment and not necessarily with preaching, about preaching to others about, no, you shouldn't do this because this is this, just by our example, okay, then other people might turn to, to, to this kind of life 
and 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 feel convicted about their own sin simply by our, by our example. Saint Jerome, he says the Christian bishop has to be like that. Those who argue with him about the dogma cannot argue about his life. Meaning we might disagree on what is true about God, but but you are not going to disagree that the person who is a true Christian is 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 wrong, is doing is living in the wrong way. Um Regarding the presence of saints and sinners in the church, St. Augustine, he says, The world is like a tree with leaves. From afar, it looks like a tree with leaves but no fruits. But closely, you find sweet fruits. Likewise, the world is full of wicked people, but many saints are hiding in it. So again, as we said before, like the church is not all one group of people or the other. Here is now Gaius and Demetrius are both good examples from the same place. Okay. <coughs> I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So again, just like in the previous book, he ends it um, uh, saying that he is going to meet them in, uh, soon. Um, I hope to see you shortly, which again explains why this is a short book. He's not there trying to you know, expound on everything comprehensively, but he is just kind of writing this introduction to his visit. Um, and some say this book might even be sent to the same church as the second John was, was sent. And um, there's many of the same themes um, and, and St. John expressing his joy about seeing his children walk in truth. So he, he does a final greeting here um, and then he promises to come and visit them or hopes to come and visit them again. Any comments or questions about this book? So the question is, is how do you know if you're putting healthy boundaries versus unhealthy boundaries that causes division? Okay. So I, I think you have to ask yourself, like, what is the reason for the boundaries? Um, like, is, is the reason for the boundaries because of selfishness? Is the reason of the boundaries because, um, like, impatience or intolerance? Or is the reason for the boundaries because... I'm being harmed by something that that person is doing and so that I have to protect myself from it, you know? So, so harmed is if there is like a consistent and repeated pattern where that person is doing something that hurts me and I have to protect myself from it, okay? Look, the idea with boundaries is that boundaries have to be according to our will. So, Let's say let's say my personality is such that I have very little tolerance for um, for certain behaviors. Okay, so I set a boundary for it. Okay, uh, that's my boundary. That's what I'm able to to handle. Maybe the boundary of someone who is a saint um, would not be that boundary, but I have to be realistic with like what I'm able to to deal with. If if somebody begins to kind of encroach on this boundary and it causes me to lose my temper all the time, all the time, all the time. Okay, then I have maybe a weakness, but while I have that weakness, I have to protect myself or else I'm always going to keep just losing my temper about it. So 
I need to find a, a compromise, like a way where I can protect myself while at the same time leaving the door open for me to grow more patient. Right. Now you can protect yourself from, so like, let, let's say, I mean, I don't know, I'm just trying to come up with an example. Let's say somebody comes and they want to borrow my stuff all the time and they just come, come into my room and they take my stuff. Okay. So on the one hand, you can say, well, the Christian principle of love and sharing and giving and all that stuff says share of your stuff. Okay. But the other principle of, of I don't want to share my stuff and, I, and, and when you take my stuff, I don't have access to it and maybe I was planning to use it and now I'm not able to use it. Now that starts to cause a problem. Okay. So you have these two competing principles. What is the right answer? There isn't one answer, right? You know, somebody like St. Abram, for instance, whenever anyone would give any money to the church, he would give it all to the poor. He says, you know, we don't even need to, to build a building for the church. We don't even need a bishopric. We don't need anything. We're just going to give everything to the poor. Like, that's one extreme, if you want to call it that. And, and he was criticized for that. Okay, but he's a saint who's able to give everything, right? Then you have the other extreme, which is someone who's not willing to share anything, right? So where am I in this spectrum, right? Wherever I am, I have to, no, okay, this is where I am. This is how I feel. What do my feelings tell me? My feelings tell me is that I get annoyed when that person, you know, comes and he does it. Well, so what if we create a system, a system where um, I will let you borrow my things a certain number of times, you know, or on certain t days of the week or whatever you want to come up with. So what you're doing is you're saying it's not okay for you to just do whatever you want. But it's also not okay for me to deny you 100% of the time. So let's come up with a system where we both can agree to it. And so I'm fulfilling my obligation of sharing. Well, at the same time, I'm acknowledging that I'm not at the level of St. Abram. And I can't just share 100% of everything 100% of the time. Now, maybe over time, as I grow and maybe I get less attached to those things and uh, whatever, maybe I will feel more tolerating of expanding that boundary or, or re reducing that boundary so that I'm, I'm giving you more access to that. Maybe at one point I'm going to say, okay, just take it, right? But I'm not there yet, you know? I'm not there yet. So d you can't set a boundary that is beyond your spiritual level, right? But you can, but at the same time, that doesn't mean ignore it altogether. Work together and communicate and try to find a solution that, meet both of your needs so i think that is the right way in real life relationships with people who are not saints of how to deal with it okay any other okay let's pray In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for allowing us to study the book of Third John and to learn, O Lord, from St. John the Beloved, how he deals with all kinds of concerns and problems in the church. We ask, O God, that you give us a heart of love and to share, O Lord, and to encourage the ministry of others. We thank you, O Lord, for all the service you have given us and the service you have called us for and all the ways, O Lord, we have benefited from the service of those who came before us and who's who are here now praying for us and serving us and, and attracting us to you. Forgive us our sins, O God, and help us to be focused on you and not to, to turn aside, O Lord, to sin or temptation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. Commune of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.